It's so great to see all of you tonight and to spend our final moments together here today in the Word of God together. It's a place that you're familiar with, and you may be the only one familiar with it. It's a quiet place. It's a place that is probably a favorite for you, and that is the, the quiet place that you have to be with God. It is that place that might be your kitchen table, it might be your bed, it might be a favorite chair, it might be um, a place out in, at a park, or whatever it is for you, and maybe it's a private place for you. But it's also in this quiet place that sometimes struggles and battles are happening between you and the Lord. The temptation to ask, why is this happening to me? The temptation even to be angry with God, to tell Him, I don't understand this and therefore it feels wrong to me. It may be the place to complain to God, to tell Him, I don't understand why you would allow me to go through this. And what may even be harder, what may even be worse, is when in that quiet place, it's something that's not yet happening, but is about to happen. Something that you're aware of. The trial you know you'll have to endure. God has already allowed, or He will sovereignly allow in your life, whether it has happened, is happening, or will happen, circumstances that will make you wish that you could trade places with just about anybody else. And it's in that quiet place that you'll question God. That you'll say, why me? And that you'll struggle with the the thoughts of this isn't fair or I didn't think this would ever happen to me. And so this quiet place to be with God, this can be the scene of certainly your great communion with the Lord, your understanding of his word your time of prayer but it also can be the same place where you experience angst and worry and anxiety because your mind is now in overdrive with these thoughts and you hope and pray that 15 and 20 and maybe even 30 minutes in this quiet place will provide peace and and maybe it does and maybe it doesn't and so that place Although a special place can be a place where you wrestle with God as Jacob did in the book of Genesis. We'll come back to that quiet place with God in a little while. Just keep that in your mind. Now, of course, these circumstances are ultimately meant for your good. We understand that. We've talked about that here a lot. They're meant to grow your faith and your trust in the Lord. For example, Psalm 119.71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. The, the suffering psalmist has been driven to the word of God by means of his own pain, his own suffering. But every once in a while, when a time of great trial comes upon us, it's almost like we do everything the opposite of what we should do. And out of sheer panic, we stop trusting the Lord and seemingly start to find solutions anywhere and everywhere else except in the safety of the sovereignty of our loving God. We find human solutions, we find solutions that we think will help, and we become like a child who's going too fast on a bicycle downhill. Have you ever seen this? Does he apply the brake? Does he steer wisely and consider all options? No. His feet fly off the pedal, his hands go up, and he screams right up to the moment of the ultimate crash, and then gets 10,000 views on YouTube after that. It's like... What's the worst thing you could do? Well, let's stop steering. Let's get our feet off the pedals and let's scream like a little girl. Well, you might be a little girl and let's just crash instead of making wise decisions. Well, it's that sort of scenario which every one of you face that I think we'll we'll find some encouragement from our final section in the book of Numbers. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33 and in this section, what we're seeing is we're seeing some final preparations that God is giving the nation of Israel before they enter into the promised land. They're camped in their final place before crossing the Jordan River to their immediate west. And now God is finishing these preparations. And if you recall, the main theme that we've seen in the book of Numbers is spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity. 
Israel is getting ready to embark upon something they've never done before to this level. They're going to, at God's command, rid the land of Canaan of all the peoples who currently live there. They're going to invade and go to war with dozens of kings, dozens of cities, city-states, and this is going to be a challenge. This is going to be a trial. This is going to be the hardest thing they've ever done. And so tonight, I'd like to look at spiritual maturity through preparation. And I'd like to show you four ways to prepare for a major challenge or for a trial or for a time of pain. Now, these are tools that you have at your disposal to be strengthened for whatever challenge is brought by our loving, sovereign God into your path. And hopefully these will be a help to you. But when we're done, I want to point out something that all four of these ways of preparing have in common. They all have one thing in common. We'll do that at the end. Here's the first way to prepare for a challenge or a time of trial. And that is, remember God's past leading. Remember God's past leading. Chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. These are the stages of the people of Israel. When they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron... The stages means the order in which they would leave and which they would camp. Verse 2, Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord. And these are the stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramesses in the first month. On the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So the stages of the people, it speaks of the order in which they leave, in which they camp, and then where they go. And what we're going to see here in the rest of the chapter is really just a a, a location by location uh, record of where they went. But these first four verses remind us, first of all, the, the ten plagues that God used He used them to free Israel from slavery to Pharaoh of Egypt, but he also used it, at the end of verse 4, on their gods also the Lord executed judgment. He demonstrated his superiority over the false gods of Egypt. You might think, why is that significant? Deuteronomy 32 and 1 Corinthians 10 explicitly state that demons are behind the worship of false gods. And yes, people are prone to worship things that they've made out of wood or stone, But demons are more than happy to imitate and simulate the existence of a God. And so when God defeated the false gods of Egypt, he was defeating and subjugating the massively powerful demons behind them. And so it was a spiritual battle that God won. That's just a side note. But now the rest of this detailed chapter chronicles no fewer than 40 campsites of Israel over the past 40 years. And we won't read the whole thing. It's just a, it's a lot of geography and, and interesting in and of itself. But I do want to make this comment. Many scholars have long dismissed the account of the Exodus as mythical and inaccurate because of Numbers chapter 33. They say, well, that can't really be true. And the reason is, is that they have all of these geographic sites here and many of them have not been located by archaeologists. And so biblical scholars who are quick to dismiss the truth of Scripture, unfortunately, will say, well, since those sites haven't been found, then it's probably more of a myth. It's probably more of a made-up story. A couple of things about that, because we should defend the word just for a moment. First of all, a lot of these names that you'll read here are just places in the wilderness. There's nothing to dig up or find. It's, it's like a rest stop. You know, in 5,000 years, do you think a rest stop on, on the five is going to actually uh, be dug up by somebody? And look at the civilization that had this machine that you put money into and the Coke doesn't come out and you put more money into it and it doesn't come out still. No, it's going to be gone. There's another, another thing to consider here. This is what's called an argument from silence. That because some of these places have not been found, they certainly must not exist Well, that's silly. The most experienced archaeologists will tell you that of all the things that archaeologists wish they could find, they believe that they have found somewhere in the vicinity of one thousandth of one percent of everything that's possible to find. So there's there's many things out there. 
we don't need the unauthoritative external evidence of archaeology to somehow prove the authoritative inspired word of God. But, I love it when this happens, archaeology once again wins. In 1994, a, a scholar by the name of Krakmalkov presented proof that these places were actually very well known in the days of the ancient Egyptian empire. And he wrote, the Israelite invasion route described in Numbers 33, 45 through 50 was in fact an official heavily trafficked Egyptian road through the Transjordan in the late Bronze Age. How do they know this? Because they dug up something in Egypt that had pretty much the same map that we find here. So one more time to everybody who says the Bible isn't true. Biblical archaeology doesn't prove the Bible, but it's a lot of fun because it's, it's undefeated. Every time they dig up something, oh, something else from the Bible is true. Oh, something else from the Bible is true. Love that. Every attempt to cast a shadow on the doubt of the historical accuracy of the Word of God gets consistently shot to pieces. So when you're reading Numbers 33, don't dismiss these places. Don't dismiss Baal Zephon and Pehaharath. Don't say, oh, well, those are just hard to say. No, those are historical places that are real. And just because the Bible is the only record of them doesn't mean it's not real. It just means the Bible's the only record of them. That's a side note. There's an interesting feature to this list of campsites if we were to read through this. And we've been through the book of Numbers here. They've been traveling around. But this list doesn't mention the blessings from God and it doesn't mention the discipline of the Lord which has happened in these places. The closest it gets to mentioning the specific event is a short interlude about the death of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Look with me at chapter 33, verse 38. Just a little interlude here. And Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. But other than that, we just have the place names. That's it. Now, what would these place names mean to the Israelites? Why, why, are, they, are, are, why are they devoid of detail? Why do, they, why do they not talk about the blessings or the discipline of the Lord? Well, very simply, just like in your life, place names evoked all the memories that they needed. Think about places that are special to you. Think about places that uh, mean something to you. In our family, all we have to do is say the word text line. And that brings a whole bunch of memories because text line is a little tiny town on the border of Texas and New Mexico where we spent a blizzard locked into a motel for four days. And that brings up all those memories. And so the Israelites understood this. They, they could say, remember when our fathers turned back to Pahaharath and camped before Migdal. This is in verse 7. Remember how that location was actually what trapped them between the Red Sea and the, the uh, army of Egypt? And how God saved them by his might by parting the waters of the Red Sea? They didn't have to explain Pahaharath. Or remember Kibroth Hata'ava, verse 16. This is where God struck dead all who had complained about the manna we were receiving. Remember that? We always say, thank you, Lord, for the manna from now on. This geographic history of the first 40 years of Israel's travels is filled with the accounts not only of God's faithfulness to protect and bless them, but also his faithfulness to discipline them and to purify them. And all they needed were the place names to remember this. And remember, this is the second generation of Israelites. All the adults who escaped Egypt except for Moses, Joshua, and Caleb at this point, they're dead. And so the travels of Israel were indeed the entire history of Israel as far as this younger generation is concerned. This is their history. And so God was having them remember his past leading. What he's done in the past, because what was coming before them would be much more challenging than merely wandering the wilderness for a few decades. And what was this remembrance meant to do? It was meant to bolster their faith, because what is coming next? A command to take the land. They've been in a couple of battles, four at this point, but now they have dozens before them. They have massive battles before them. For the past 40 years, God has been leading, guiding. He's been faithful. And he's saying to them, remember this. Burn this in your heart and in your memory. 
And I think this is a very apt illustration. It's a living illustration, isn't it? The illustration of traveling with God. That in their travels, God has been faithful. And of course, if you know your New Testament, this reminds you of of a phrase that's used often in the New Testament, seven times in the book of Ephesians alone. The Apostle Paul refers to our relationship with God through Christ as our walk with the Lord, our travels with the Lord. In fact, this is common language to the Christian now. When I say your walk with the Lord, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your day-by-day travels, as it were, through your faith. Numbers 33 tells us, look back at that walk. Look at how faithful God has been. Look at how consistent he's been. Look how wise God has been. You remember this situation where you thought all was lost and how God brought you through it. And because of that, your confidence in him is increased immeasurably. One Christian was expressing his worry to a brother in the church, just being honest, and he said, I'm I'm concerned about God's provision. We're really struggling financially right now. And his brother in Christ said directly, you're you're right. You might actually starve to death because that's happened so many times to you in the past. It hasn't. Looking back to chronicle the faithfulness of God is really among the most effective ways you can prepare to face what seems like an uncertain time. And we balance this praise for God's faithfulness, of course, with our cries for assistance in our time of need. We do cry out to the Lord. It reminds me of the pastor who asked a church member in a difficult situation He said to her, how is your life going right now? And she answered, I find myself living somewhere between thank you, Lord, and help me, Jesus. And I'm right in between. I love Psalm 106. It's long, it's 48 verses. I won't take time to read the whole thing to you. But Psalm 106 is basically the history of Israel from the exodus all the way to the exile. And you don't have to turn there, but I just want to tell you about it. It's worth just savoring and thinking about. And the whole point of Psalm 106 is to bless God for his faithfulness. To bless him for his kindness and his grace. Even though in Psalm, the, the basic theme in Psalm 106 is, is we did bad, bad, bad. And you did good, good, good. You did good to us. Good things. I would challenge you as it were, to write your own Psalm 106. To write a psalm of remembrance, of recollection of all that God has done. Can you imagine how powerful it would be if you decided to get a notebook or to open a Word document, whatever you use, and every day for 15 minutes begin from the moment of your salvation and begin to chronicle everything you can remember that God has done? You would end up with a book, I guarantee you. Unless you're 10 and you just came to faith then you'll have a page and that's okay. How faithful he's been. How do you prepare for a challenge, time of trial or pain? Remember God's past leading. Remember his past leading. Let me give you a second way to prepare for a challenge or a time of trial or pain. Confront your disobedient fears. Confront your disobedient fears. And what we're talking about tonight, this is serious stuff. This, these are things that happen in, in, in your heart, in your mind, that are important And it's more than just emotional comfort. You're not just being bolstered emotionally. You are being bolstered spiritually, and that's different. Confront your disobedient fears. Look near the end of chapter 33 with me at verse 50 of chapter 33. Chapter 33, verse 50. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. And so God commands Israel once again. He's confirming his will that they take the land, which has always by right belonged to them anyway. God deeded it to their father Abraham all the way back the end of Genesis 15. To your offspring I give this land. And he was specific about the land. They were to be faithful to this task, to to take back what was theirs. 
And just know this briefly in verse 52, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Israel is to be the instrument of God's wrath to the wicked peoples living in Canaan. And just so we're clear, when God says you're to drive them out, he doesn't mean by shooing them out. He means by killing them. He means by doing away with them. That is God's right. It is not our right to question that. He is the judge. Verse 54, the land is to be divided by clans and by tribes. Then in chapter 34, the first 15 verses, it outlines the boundaries of the land that they were to take. I won't read through all of it with you. It just, it tells very specifically where certain tribes were to be, where the boundaries of the whole land was to be rather. And it's specific enough that you can draw a map. Then beginning in verse 16 of chapter 34, all the way to the end of the chapter, it simply tells us who was in charge of each tribe to allot the land given to each tribe, who was going to take care of this. And in chapter 35, 1 through 8, God makes certain that the tribe of Levi, those who are designated for special tabernacle service, as you remember, they're not given a land inheritance, but he makes sure that they have 48 cities and the surrounding lands spread out all throughout Israel. So in other words, there, there won't be a province or a, an area that is just the Levite area. They'll be spread out all throughout Israel with little pockets that belong to them, 48 cities. Israel was to remember that their life as a theocratic nation revolves around tabernacle worship. It revolves around the sacrificial system. This encouraged them toward obedience, toward keeping Yahweh at the center of their lives. And so he gives the Levites an inheritance that they're not to have to earn at all. It's just theirs. But God gives Israel a warning concerning all of this. Look with me back at chapter 33, right at the end, verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Well, how did Israel do? If you read the book of Joshua, we'd find out that they get, I don't know, call it a C plus, B minus. They did pretty well but not nearly what God had fully intended. They didn't take everything that was theirs. Numbers 34 outlined the boundaries of the land they were to take. After this point, 10 times in the Old Testament, the north and the south boundaries of Israel are expressed by a simple phrase saying from Dan to Beersheba, the city of Dan to the city of Beersheba. That said, from the north to the south. It's, it's like us saying from the Canadian border to the Mexican border. That tells us where, we're, where we are, what we're talking about. So what are the borders given in Numbers 34? Verse 8 mentions Lebo Hamath in the north. Verse 4 mentions Kadesh Barnea in the south. Lebo Hamath is far north of Dan and Kadesh Barnea is far south of Beersheba. In other words, they didn't take everything that they were supposed to. They fell short. You look at a map of Israel as it is today, frankly, it's, it's about one-fifth of the size that it ought to be. It's small. Now, we take great comfort from the fact that God gave Abraham the boundaries of the land given to his descendants in Genesis 15. These boundaries have never once in all of history been fully realized, which tells us that our faithful God will give all that land to Israel in the future. Did you know that the boundary of Israel, according to Genesis 15, according to God's decree, is supposed to go all the way to the Nile River? You know that happened once for just a matter of weeks in the mid-60s of this, of this century or last century? Not anymore. For now, though, Israel is warned to be obedient to God in this conquest or the peoples they leave will be a thorn in their sides that ultimately sway Israel toward idolatry, toward the great discipline of the Lord, which is in fact what the rest of the Old Testament is about. About how they did not fulfill Numbers 33, 55, and 56. And because of this, what, happened to, what should have happened to the nations then happened to them. You remember what the fear of their fathers a generation earlier had been when they were given a command to conquer Canaan. Why are they wandering for 40 years? Because their fathers were fearful. Moses had sent spies into Canaan. And you remember from Numbers 13, 
Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Will it not, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of being slaughtered by the Canaanites, and so they disobeyed. Now, I don't know if you remember this from Numbers 13. But the Israelite army at that point consisted of just over 600,000 men. All the Canaanite armies, according to archaeology, tell us that all of them together consisted of 100,000 men. And yet they were afraid because some of them were tall. They were afraid... And so they disobeyed. By the way, it said it would have been better if we had died in this wilderness and God gave them their wish. They did die in the wilderness. That's why I say confront your disobedient fears because to operate in fear generally is to do something other than what God would have you to do. It creates a wrong response. It creates a response based in self-preservation, not based in obedience. In the challenge or the trial or the pain you're facing or about to face, this is a terrific question to ask. What am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? What holds the greatest terror for me? What or whom am I fearing? Because now, armed with that knowledge, you can chart a clearer path forward by doing that which you would do if you were not afraid. That's the second great question. What would I do if I were fearless? What would I do instead? By the way, I'm not talking about the emotion of fear. That may be part of it. I'm talking about what is the thing you're most trying to avoid that you don't want to deal with, that you don't want to have a part of your life. How may I be acting in disobedience in my attempt to avoid that thing? I don't want to go through this. What else am I going to do? If a physical challenge is my issue and my biggest fear is having that issue bring pain and calamity into my life, then it's possible to disobey the Lord by placing all of my hope in a cure, all of my hope in a physical solution, all my hope in solving the problem. Instead, I am to pray, certainly for the problem to be solved, but I'm to place all of my hope in what Philippians 4 calls the peace that surpasses understanding, that surpasses my ability to understand, to grasp, to have knowledge. If a relationship problem is my challenge and my biggest fear is a a difficult or even confrontational interaction, then it's possible to disobey the Lord by either completely avoiding that necessary interaction or worse, acting sinfully in a way to protect myself, protect my emotions. Instead, I'm to pray for God's help and to take the attitude of Philippians 2 of considering others as more important than myself. Instead, I'm to take the admonition of Ephesians 4 to be tender-hearted, to be kind, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. If an unknown future that may be difficult is my challenge and my biggest fear is not being able to see into that darkness, then it's possible to disobey the Lord by fretting about it every single day and letting that impact how I treat others around me because of my anxiety. Instead, I'm to take the advice of the psalmist in Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. If my wife or my husband is my challenge because certain things are just not changing, then that's my biggest fear. Then it's possible to act sinfully in the hopes of forcing or manipulating changes. Instead, Scripture admonishes us to focus on ourselves, for husbands to love your wives and wives to honor your husbands and both to listen to one another. Since Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. 
You have to write your own script on this. You have your own situation. But one thing is clear. It may very well be that the Lord is allowing this particular trial into your life precisely so you can confront those fears. You ever try to fool God in your own mind, but you have that thing that you know is the last thing on planet Earth you ever want to have happen to you, and so you try to sort of pretend in your mind that, that you're fine with that and you'd rather have a different trial? And You know, God, I just, just anything, anything. Oh, wait, no, if I say I don't want anything except this, then that's probably what you'll do with me. So I'm going to say I'm fine with that. Cancer is good with me. I, I, I'm good with that. You're not going to fool God. Your trial has been written as a prescription for your heart. You may as well just save time and write the Lord a thank you note and say thank you for writing to me that script that I need. That I confront that very thing that is my worst, not maybe fear, but my weak spot. And he's done it for you. Remember God's past leading. This is our preparation for a challenge The second way, confront your disobedient fears. Here's a third way to prepare for a challenge. Enjoy fellowship with God. Enjoy fellowship with God. And it's going to take a moment for us to get to this point. Here's a long story here. At the beginning of chapter 35, the Levites are given 48 cities throughout Israel to be theirs. But six of those cities were to serve an additional function. They were cities of refuge for accused murderers. Chapter 35, verse 15, summarizes the first part of this decree. Look with me at chapter 35, verse 15. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. This is the ordinance for what some would call manslaughter. You're running your cattle through a field and you didn't know a guy was taking a nap there and that was the last nap he ever took something happens that a death occurs some sort of unintentional taking of another's life but the next section now beginning in verse 16 specifies that if a weapon of some type some type is used or if premeditation can be demonstrated look with me at verse 19 of chapter 35 the avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death when he meets him he shall put him to death This isn't personal vengeance. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then in verse 22, it returns once again to the unintentional loss of life. There's to be a a trial at that point. Uh, Verse 24, rather. The congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules if the death was accidental at some level. And if the accused is found to have committed an unintentional act of manslaughter... He can remain safe. How does he remain safe? He is said to, he has to live in that city of refuge and get this, until the high priest of Israel dies. And then he can go. So if the high priest is 90, won't be long. If he's 35, I think you better settle in for a while. And if the accused ever ventures outside the city, then the avenger of blood may kill him. And so the Levites... In these six cities of refuge constitute very much the criminal justice system of Israel. Three of the cities were on the west and three on the east side of the, the Jordan River. So you didn't have to cross a river. I guess if you're running for your life, crossing the river is the last thing you want to do. So you run to this city of refuge. And in those six cities, when a stranger suddenly shows up out of breath and suddenly very interested in your city and wants to stay for a while, you know there's a, a, there's a story behind it and B, others are going to be coming very soon. To look for him. They can't do anything to him, but they can let those Levites know what's happening. Now, you might wonder, who is this avenger of blood? And that phrase is used several times here in this chapter. Avenger is the same word sometimes translated in Hebrew, redeemer, ga'el. It's, uh, it's used of a near and a close male relative, such as the, the book of Ruth, in which Boaz, the ga'el, the redeemer, A close relative of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. Remember, he redeems the destitute family by buying all the land of her dead husband. So it's the same word. But in the same way, the near and close male relative of the person who has been murdered is now given the responsibility of avenger of blood. It's not a personal vengeance. It's not a family vendetta. It's not a feud of some sort. 
it places the official responsibility for the execution of the guilty person on the family member of the victim. And this is after a trial. Look with me at verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The Levite judges of the city held the trial, but they didn't do the executing. That was the responsibility of the family member, the Gael, the avenger, avenger of blood, the redeemer. Now, I want you to know this. There is only one appropriate penalty for willful murder. Verse 31. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. In our criminal justice system, murderers almost always receive a sentence of imprisonment of some kind. That's an unbiblical sentence. How much safer would our society be if every convicted murderer were simply executed? I think crime would go down, but even if it didn't, justice would go up. There's only one penalty. And what this means is no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how powerful, no matter how great an attorney you hire, no matter how well-connected the willful murderer will look into the eyes of the bereft family member who will then execute him almost certainly in front of the whole city. And even if the one guilty of manslaughter who is banished to a city of refuge, he can't ransom himself. There's no price he can pay for his freedom until the high priest dies. Verse 32 tells us that. Now, why is this here? Well, first of all, it's here because it's incredibly just. This is to create a safe community in which the guilty are punished and the victim's family is directly involved in getting some sort of satisfaction and justice. So that's the first reason. But there's a bigger, overriding, spiritual reason that God has set up the system. Look with me at chapter 35, verse 33. You shall not pollute the land in which you live. For blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who has shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. In other words, and you can apply this however you want, a land filled with unpunished murderers is a polluted land, as far as God is concerned. The land in this particular case in Israel, is, the, is where God has graciously made his dwelling place with his people. And God will not live in a polluted land. He won't do it. But this isn't just land in a metaphorical sense, such as a country or a geographic area. God is saying the actual land, the actual dirt, the soil, the farmland, the means of their prosperity is corrupt because of unpunished sin. And we actually see this coming into play in 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21, you don't have to turn there. Just listen to this story. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. This is probably near the end of the reign of David. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And remember, Saul was the first king of Israel. David was his successor. Saul had done something, and God says there's blood guilt on the land because of Saul, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Who were the Gibeonites? They were a smart little people who saw the writing on the wall all the way back in Joshua 9, this massive Israelite army coming toward them. And if you were to look at the list that Joshua had of all the peoples to be conquered, the Gibeonites were on it. And so the Gibeonites tricked Israel. They got a few guys all dressed up in, in, in clothes that looked like they'd been traveling for hundreds of miles with stale crusts of bread and, and it looked like they'd been on the road for weeks and weeks and weeks and they came to Israel and they said, you know, hey, we, we hear you're pretty big and we just wanted to make sure that, that you're, you're not going to mess with us, the Gibeonites. You know, we come from a far away country, no place that you want to be at all. Uh, are, are you okay with making a treaty with us? Joshua said, yeah, we're good with that. And then it was found out that the Gibeonites basically lived right up the road and around the corner. 
Once their deceit was found out, the Gibeonites were told, we will keep our word to you. Now, the trade-off was that the Gibeonites are said to be the woodcutters and the water carriers of Israel. That they would serve Israel, but they would live. Why? Because the leaders of Israel would keep their word. And they did. But what King Saul had done hundreds of years later, which isn't recorded anywhere else directly in Scripture, by the way, was to break this covenant. And he murdered the descendants of these Gibeonites in a misguided attempt at zeal for the Lord. And now, for decades since Saul, these murders had gone unavenged and unpunished. And so the land had no, was, was not producing. This is generations after the conquest, and by now the Gibeonites are very much a part of the life of Israel. They own land. They enjoyed the blessing of God just as anyone who would worship God could do as, as something of an adopted Israelite. And so King David met with them and he asked what they would have him do. Second Samuel 21 verse 5 says, They said to the king, The man who consumed us, that is Saul, and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. And they knew the law of God. And so they said, Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So David took two sons of Saul and five of his grandsons and executed them. The end of this account in 2 Samuel 21, 14 says, After that, God responded to the plea for the land. He began answering prayer. The land would produce a crop once again. Why? Because blood guilt was now removed. Atonement had taken place. The sin had been dealt with. In other words, now fellowship with God is restored because sin was cleansed. It was paid for. And I told you it would take a minute to get here, but here's our point. Fellowship with God as a nation was maintained and enjoyed by taking sin seriously so that they might enjoy God's goodness and favor. Whatever challenge or trial or pain you're facing, it has to include rigorous and intense self-examination. It has to. This includes a cleansing time of prayer, a time with, with the Lord, a time to read His Word, times to, to ask Him to reveal every dark corner of your own heart. And I have seen this more often than I care to remember. Christians in the midst of a trial just getting frozen by, by sinfully looking for external solutions to provide immediate emotional relief instead of taking the opportunity to, to find this sweet spot with the Lord, this special time in prayer and in the Word, not to get some instant emotional zing, but to say, Lord, you have knocked me down onto my face. This is as good a time as any to ask you to reveal to my own heart how I need to grow through this. What is it about me that I could become more like Christ? What is it about me that would become more like you? And by doing that, you build spiritual muscle and strength with the Lord. And, and, and yes, of course, that includes sweet times in the Psalms and times of crying out to God in prayer. But it has to be that fellowship is based in self-examination. That fellowship is based in, in times of cleansing and purifying and asking the Lord to help you with that. You know what this is going to do? this enjoyment of fellowship with the Lord, what is the one thing that makes a trial so hard that every trial has in common? The one thing that makes it so hard is time. We, we, we need more time or we want less time in the trial or it's going to go on for an undetermined amount of time. That's what makes it difficult. Do you know what these times of fellowship with the Lord will do? It will take time out of the equation. You want to know why? Because if you will enjoy fellowship with the Lord, you will reach a point where you wake up one morning and say, these times of sweet fellowship with the Lord have been so good that I just realized I'm not looking for a solution anymore. At least that's not my number one priority. I'm simply enjoying my time with the Lord. And I've heard many of you tell me, I wouldn't trade this trial for anything in the world because my times with the Lord have never been so sweet. They've never been so good. It helps you accept the new normal. And so we remember God's past leading. We confront your disobedient fears. 
We enjoy fellowship with God, and this includes self-examination. Let me give you one more way to prepare for a challenge or a time of trial. And now you're ready for this. It took the first three. It took remembering God's past leading. It took confronting your disobedient fears. And it took enjoying fellowship with God to get to this point. And this is, we return now to where we begin. Instead of remembering God's past leading, now it's believe God's future leading. Believe God's future leading. The essence of faith is to live as if you already know the blessing of the future. That's faith. Now, interestingly, the book of Numbers ends on kind of an anticlimactic note. It returns to an inheritance issue that we saw previously all the way back in chapter 27 with the daughters of Zelophehad. Zelophehad had these daughters and they were going to be denied their father's inheritance because he had died. And he didn't have any sons. He had five girls. But God righteously and rightly ruled that if a man has no sons, then his daughters get his wealth and his lands. And you remember that we saw that all inheritance went to sons, not to daughters. That wasn't to be unfair. Daughters also received an inheritance, but they did it by marrying somebody else's son. But the daughters of Zelophehad had gone to Moses and said, we have no brothers, we have no husbands. Will our land that belongs to, to us or that will belong to us, will all the wealth of our father, will it go to someone else? And God said, no, it's yours. But now, once again, in chapter 36, we see the daughters of Zelophehad. They will receive an inheritance of land when Israel completes the conquest. Now, let's talk about the daughters of Zelophehad for a minute. We don't know that much about them. We know their names uh, from an English standpoint. A couple of their names are unfortunate. Uh, verse 11, Mala, that's all right, Terza, I wouldn't want to be the middle child, Hogla, Milka, and then I don't know where this came from, Noah, or maybe she was a tomboy, I don't know. We don't know much about them. We don't know if they were particularly beautiful. We do know that they were wise. Their father, had he been alive, would be proud that they took their case to Moses. We know they were wise. So we don't know a lot about them. We don't know what they look like. But here's what we do know. They were single and rich. Every one of them. They were the most eligible bachelorettes in Israel. They would have been the stars of Israelite bachelorette. These five women would have land. They would have property. They're of marriageable age. They would have men knocking down their doors. But this last section of Numbers deals with a problem. The men interested in them were not just from their tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. These women were the Israelite bachelorettes and men from every tribe would be vying for their attention. Because generally, a young man gets an inheritance from his father and marries a woman with nothing and they make their life together. But he would get an inheritance from his father and marry somebody who already has stuff. And so, of course, they would want that. But there's a problem. If they marry outside the tribe of Manasseh, then part of the, tri- the land of Manasseh is now parceled out to other tribes. And now the land begins to disappear. God is keeping Israel as a unified nation. He's not allowing the tribes to compete with one another and even to hurt one another. If the daughters of Zelophehad married outside their tribe, you know what would happen? Civil war would happen. And so chapter 36, verse 6 This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. Now imagine this. The daughters of Zelophehad, they're literally the most eligible single women in Israel. They could have any man. They could have picked from the most handsome, from the wealthiest, from the greatest warriors, but they didn't. Verse 10 The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. They married within their own family. 
By the way, it says in verse 11, they married the sons of their father's brothers. They married their first cousins because that kept the land in the family. The five daughters were faithful to God. They didn't use their holdings to catch the most handsome or otherwise wealthiest men of Israel. They obeyed God. They married within their tribe. This was an act of obedience that can mean only one thing. There's only one possible reason. They believed God would honor this in the future. They believed that pleasing God was the greatest thing they could do for their own futures and they received from the Lord's hand whatever their future might be. Now, by the way, the implication here is that God is concerned with land boundaries remaining intact. Why is that important? Because he intends to restore them someday. And the act of the daughters of Zelophehad are a microcosm of the faith that we have in the scriptures that they're true when they promise a future Israel which serves and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. The daughters of Zelophehad are, are like a little miniature story that says God is going to keep the boundaries of Israel intact. And in fact, this final lesson in Numbers, the obedience of the daughters of Zelophehad is part of what's called an inclusio. An inclusio is a a large section in Scripture which has similar bookends at the beginning and at the end, and the parts in between the bookends illustrate kind of a main point. And the book of Numbers ends on this inclusio, and it's a big one. The beginning of the inclusio goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 27, when we first see the case of the daughters of Zelophehad, and it ends when they make a return in this decision right here in Numbers 36, that tribal lands will remain in the tribe. The daughters of Zelophehad are showing that obeying the word of the Lord, obeying the leading of God, is an act of faith, listen, that believing God will take care of us in the future. I believe God will take care of us in the future, and that's the lesson of this inclusio. How do we know this? In between chapter 27 and chapter 36 we have the end of chapter 27 joshua is identified as the successor of moses showing what that god will take care of israel in the future chapters 28 and 29 israel is reminded of all her annual festivals and sacrifices which maintain fellowship with god such that what he will be faithful in the future chapter 30 the family life of israel and the fathers and the husbands protecting their wives and daughters as we saw implies that they need to be protected for what for the future chapter 31 god takes vengeance on the midianites for their past treachery against israel why because god has a future for israel chapter 32 we see the beginning of some tribes settling in the land on the west side on the east side rather of the jordan river even before the conquest we see that god has a future for Israel. We get to our text this evening, chapter 33. God recounts the past to remind Israel of his faithfulness and to give give them confidence for the future. Chapter 34 and 35, the boundaries of the land are established exactly and justice is to prevail in the land of Israel because God wants to give them a future in an unpolluted land. And finally, we return to the daughters of Zelophehad to close out this inclusio and once more, They're trusting God that their sacrifice had a greater value than trying to get all that they can get in this life. They had an eternal perspective and it's evidenced by their obedience. And so Numbers ends with that lesson. Numbers 36, verse 13. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. The lesson is, follow the Lord and he will take care of your future. future. Ways to prepare for a challenge or a time of trial. Remember God's past leading. Confront your disobedient fears. Enjoy fellowship with God. Believe God's future leading. I hope that for you, those aren't just sermon points that you go, and that was interesting. I gave you a way to prepare for a trial. Now, I told you I would tell you that all four of these ways to prepare for a future trial, difficult time, have one thing in common. Did you catch it? Did you figure it out yet? All of them are internal. All of them happen in your mind, in your heart, and in your soul. All of these preparations happen inside you. You ready for this? Remember that quiet place that we began? Where we began, whether it's your kitchen table or your bed or a a favorite chair 
all of these preparations for trial and for pain and for difficulty can literally happen right there. You can be prepared for anything in the comfort of your own home. In your favorite place, the table, your bed, your chair, backyard, whatever it is. You can remember God's past leading. You can recall and recount all the ways God has been faithful to you. First and foremost, by saving you, by opening your eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when you were wallowing in your own sin, he opened your heart to know that Christ is the only hope for forgiveness. And he's been faithful ever since. In your favorite place, you can prayerfully and honestly confront your disobedient fears. You can cry out to God and say, here's what I'm afraid of and here's how I'm tempted to disobey through it. In your favorite place, you can examine yourself and enjoy fellowship with God through humble self-examination and communion with Him in prayer and in the Word. And in your favorite place, you can determine to believe God's future leading so that when you get up, when you say, that was a sweet time with the Lord, and you close your Bible and you move from that favorite place, everything else you do is incidental at that point because you're prepared. That's what spiritual strength is. That's what spiritual muscle is. And it all happens in that sacred place, that favorite place, which is in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own own soul. If you'd indulge me for just a moment, I want to finish up tonight by bringing us to a very comforting and familiar place of calm and quiet. Would you turn with me to Psalm 23? And in Psalm 23, which is so comforting, so wonderful and and familiar to us. In Psalm 23, I'd like to show you four ways to prepare for a time of challenge, a time of trial, a time of pain. The first one is, remember God's past leading. Remember God's past leading. A Psalm of David The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The Lord has always been your shepherd since the moment that He saved you. The Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, He has always been your shepherd. He promised in Matthew 28, I will never leave you. I will always be with you to the end of the age. He's always provided for your needs. He's always given you moments of peace and joy which are likened here to green pastures, to still waters. He's restored your soul so many times you've lost count through the body of Christ, through the word of God, through prayer, through your, your own times together, through the preaching of the word, through circumstantial encouragement. Over and over and over again, he's restored your soul. And he's led you in paths of righteousness not only providing the righteousness of Christ and salvation, but continually making you more and more like Him. God has led you in the past. The second way to prepare for a time of challenge, confront your disobedient fears. Verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, here's His determination, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. He makes this determination when I am in utter darkness, when I can't see the way forward, when I can't see anything, I will not fear. Why? He says, because God is here in the darkness. He can feel and he he feels, as it were, the, the rod, the staff of the shepherd. And the shepherd never leaves his staff behind. And if the rod and the staff of the shepherd are there, then the shepherd is there as well. And it comforts you. There's a third way to prepare for a time of challenge and trial. Enjoy fellowship with God. Enjoy fellowship with God. Verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is almost a ridiculous picture, isn't it? This is a picture of a man surrounded by his enemies being waited on at a fine dinner table by God himself. You anoint my head with oil. That's what you did for a guest to, to get the dust of the road off of them and to give them a pleasant fragrance. My cup overflows. Everything is just filled to overflowing. To share a meal with God is to fellowship. Even as the arrows are, are flying all around, 
Your communion is sweet and it's a delight. This is that safe place. This is your kitchen table. This is the bed. This is your favorite chair. This is your backyard. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And the fourth way to prepare for a challenge, a time of pain and trial, believe God's future leading. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In this life, the goodness and the mercy, which speaks is the hesed love of God, the loving kindness, the, the covenant love, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping love will follow you everywhere. And in the next life, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, this is a formula for spiritual success. If you can genuinely look beyond the time between now and your death, then everything becomes much more inconsequential. You ever thought about that? The more you look forward to heaven, the less what happens now really matters. It doesn't make any difference. And if you remember nothing else from tonight, just remember this. None of these spiritual preparations are external. This is not problem solving. They all happened in the mind and in the heart. Because if you win the battle of the mind and the heart, you can endure anything. You can have joy in every circumstance to the point that you literally no longer care that the problem is there. Now you're prepared. And I hope tonight has helped to prepare you. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the book of Numbers. Such a delight to have walked through this book and see the maturity that you place into your people through trials, yes, and through blessings also. Such rich lessons that we've enjoyed in this book, Lord, and tonight to see spiritual preparedness. I I pray for each of our precious ones here, Lord. They either are or they will. They are facing or they will face a trial. That is our life. I mean, we, we kind of leap from one trial to another with about a moment to breathe in between. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be prepared. I pray that you would help us to walk by faith, to walk in, in love with you, to enjoy those sweet times of communion and fellowship. And so, Lord, we ask you to prepare us, strengthen us. And then we could be like Peter. Jesus said that he would strengthen his brothers. And I pray that we also would be able to strengthen one another Encourage one another toward these preparations. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.